Good morning. I'd like to open this morning with a word of prayer. I'm feeling a little under the weather. I've been all this week. So um, let's ask the Lord for grace and eyes to see. Lord, as we draw near your word, we recognize that the flesh avails nothing. The spirit is everything. That unless you give us eyes to see, unless you speak life and light into our hearts, you remove the veil. We will not profit anything. Yet we know contained within your word is your glory. You have exalted your name and your word above all things. And so, Lord, we draw near. We would see Christ high and lifted up. We would see you more fully as you are, and in seeing be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. You can open your Bibles to Second Peter. We will get there eventually. This is a final message, fifth and final message in our series on the five solas of the Reformation, and it is topical. You'll see a lot of texts on the notes. I'm going to ask you, in the course of our message this morning, to turn to six passages. You can follow along with me on all of them if you like, but I'm only going to ask you to go to six, and I'll set you up ahead for Second Peter 1. <clears throat> and as you turn there, I want to rehearse a bit of where we've been and, and what we're going to look at this morning. As, you, as we mentioned repeatedly, 500 years ago, um, this November, was the spark, what most people see as the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses, or taped, or um, there's some debate on how he affixed them to the, the door of the cathedral, and thus started what is known as the Protestant Reformation. Prior to that time, all people who named the name of Christian were either Catholic or Greek Orthodox. Um, and, and Martin Luther and others with him, Martin Bucer, John Calvin, um, Ulrich Zwingli, among others, led a, led a reformation uh, that reclaimed the gospel. And out of those men in their theology and their writings, five solas ar- arose. They, they weren't there in the time of Luther. Luther knew nothing of five solas, but as people gathered their writings and tried to synthesize what, what was the reformation ultimately about, um, most people agree five key truths, five onlys. And we've seen them. We started in our first week with sola scriptura, Scripture alone, not Scripture and the magisterial authority of the church, not Scripture and the Pope speaking ex cathedra, but Scripture only could bind the conscience of believers and inform us for life and godliness. Then we looked at sola gratia, or gratia, depending on how you pronounce it, by grace alone. And there we saw that God's gift of salvation is his free sovereign grace it cannot be bought it cannot be bartered it cannot be obligated and you and you simply and you absolutely cannot engage in a sacerdotal system of ritual and guarantee that grace comes out the other side grace is god's free gift then pastor daniel looked at sola fide by faith alone what was the mechanism by which Christ's death and resurrection in this life are credited to the believer. It is through faith and works? No, through faith alone. And then last week, we looked at Solus Christus, Christ alone, that he alone is our sufficient sacrifice, and he alone is our great high priest. This week, we look at sola, soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. And in many respects, this final sola is the one that ties together and gives focus to all the others. In fact, if you look at your outline, you'll see that what we're gonna do this morning is look at how sola, soli deo gloria, ties into the other four solas. It gives it its goal, its teleology, its focus. Why, why do these things matter? 
Well, I'm gonna argue this morning that these truths matter because as we err on sola scriptura, as we add in other authorities to the scripture, as we twist the definition of grace, as we add works to faith, we rob God of his glory. And that ultimately God in the gospel and in Christ is determined to save sinners and bring glory to himself. And so we're gonna look through this by, by understanding how does sola scriptura tie into God's glory? How does grace alone tie into God's glory? How does faith alone and Christ alone tie into God's glory? But before we can begin, we've gotta discuss an even more foundational concept, what is glory? This is a term that we don't normally use outside of religious context. But I'm gonna to suggest to you, you see glory and respond to glory every day. So in that little circle at the top of their sheet, I try to work through a definition. It's difficult because some things, concepts, are difficult to explain. You ask me to describe to you a pencil. I think I can do that. You ask me to describe a basketball. This may surprise you. I can do that. Try to describe to someone what beauty is, what greatness is. Now you run into the challenge of describing glory. In fact, the first bullet point is going to try to describe glory sort of from God's perspective. It'll be a lot easier in the second point to describe it from ours. But here is my weak attempt at a definition um, for glory. God's glory is the manifestation of his infinite beauty, greatness, and holiness. God's glory is the manifestation of his infinite beauty, greatness, and holiness. That word manifestation, I think, is key. We'll see in Scripture that God's glory and God's holiness are very, very, very closely tied together. And you can almost think of God's glory as the evidence or the seeing or the beholding or the witnessing or the glimpsing of God's holiness. It's it's it being manifest. It's being observed. Now, that doesn't require, then, God to create beings for him to be glorious because he sees his glory. He sees the glory of his son. The son sees the glory of the father. They behold each other's glory. But God's glory is the manifestation of his infinite beauty, greatness, and holiness. Let me try to show you how these things tie together. In Leviticus 10.3, the Lord says this, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, which is seen as holy, and before all peoples, I will be glorified. So God's glory and his holiness tied together. Isaiah 6.3, that exalted vision of the Lord lifted high that Isaiah had. The angels say this, one called to another saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So the, the picture is they're responding to the holy, holy, holiness of God with the result that because God is holy, 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 the whole earth is filled with his glory. Ezekiel 28:22 in a negative sense God bringing judgment says behold I'm against you O Sidon I will manifest my glory in your midst and they shall know that I'm the Lord when I execute judgments in her and manifest my holiness in her you get the impression that God manifesting his glory and God manifesting his holiness are closely linked if not two sides of the same action so God's glory then is any manifestation any glimpsing any sight of his infinite beauty, greatness, and holiness. Now let me try to give you a definition from our perspective now that might be a little easier to get your hands around. Because you and I were made for glory. We were made to behold glory. We were made to respond to glory. We, we correspond to glory, just the way that a, a wrench corresponds to a nut and bolt. God made us for his glory. 
and to behold and enjoy his glory. So here's the blank. Number two, glory is that which creates worship and joy in us. Glory is that which creates worship and joy in us. We seek out glory, do we not? We pay money to go to the Grand Canyon, and what do you do when you get to the Grand Canyon and you look over the edge? You see something great, majestic, beautiful, vast, awesome, and what comes out of your mouth but praise. You drop to the edge of the Grand Canyon, you go, whoa. And what fills you but delight? And you don't cognitively think, I am seeing glory. I think an appropriate response would be praise. You just respond. We are hardwired for glory. We pay money to go see movies with special effects, to see you know, space battles or orcs fight over Middle Earth. And what we're getting is little glimpses of glory. And we, love, and we talk about it, and we get excited. But what do you do when you're, well, you, maybe not me, when you're watching a football game or something, and I, I know this is done, and I, you, know, you see people, as, as the, the, the runner unexpectedly is getting down the line to the field to, the, to get a goal unit, right? And, and he's gonna score some points. And he gets past, okay, I'm exaggerating. He gets past, he gets past the first person trying to intercept him, and you see the people, they start to rise to their feet, right? Why? And what do they start doing? Cheering. Gl- worship is coming out of their mouth. It's not a bad thing. They are seeing something wonderful. They're seeing a display of athletic prowess and skill. And we're hardwired for that. We seek it. We pay money to see it. Or maybe go to a concert to see something big and powerful and awesome. We, we are made for glory. And it creates in us when we see it both worship and joy. This is important to get because you're going to see in the Bible God again and again and again calling on us to worship him, to respond to his glory. Is it not in Romans that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? We were made to behold God, to be filled with joy and delight, and worship was meant to come out of our mouths not as some duty but as a delight. We were made for that, and instead, our sin and our guilt is that we run around and we look at the reflected lesser glories and we worship them like money and sex and people's praise. We don't worship the living God. Like we were made for that and glory is that which creates within us. It just happens. It's not cognitive. We are hardwired for it. Joy and worship within us. Psalm 29.2 says this. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name and worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. We, we see God's glory in his holiness and we respond in worship, respond in joy. 2 Thessalonians 1.10 gives this reason for why Christ will return. Why is Jesus coming back? He's coming back for a number of reasons, not the least of which is this. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. So Jesus is coming back so that you and I can glory in him and marvel. And that will fill us with delight. The important point here is this. God, and this moves on to point three, God is very zealous, he's jealous, he's passionate for his glory. And that is good news for us. Because if glory is what creates worship and joy in us, and God is passionate for his glory. God is passionate for our joy. 
He's passionate for us to enjoy him, to see him for who he is. In other words, he knows that he is the greatest delight. He knows that he is the greatest joy. He knows that we were made for him. So his passion for his glory is his passion for our well-being, joy, and goodness. But, but make no mistake, God is very, very zealous for his glory. Listen to Isaiah 42, 8. <coughs> Excuse me. For my own, ah, sorry. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Or Isaiah 48, 11. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. And in Ezekiel 36, when God announces the new covenant that he's gonna make, where he's gonna give us hearts of flesh and take away our hearts of stone, why does he say that he does it? Listen to this. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Ezekiel 36, 22 and 23, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which has been profaned among the nations to which you came, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among all the nations, and which you have profaned among them, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So God is passionate for his glory. I'm going to argue that God has planned and determined salvation to maximize his glory and the glory of his son. And so God's passion for his glory and the reformer's passion for the glory of God in the gospel are, are one. It's right. It's fitting. So glory is, is beholding some glimpse of God's glory. And, and we see it around us, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. You go out and you see a starry night and you just realize how vast it is and you're filled with awe and wonder. And, and you just respond to glory. And that's just the reflected glory of God. That's just the glory of God evidenced in his creation. Okay, so let's begin now. That is a working definition of glory, how it works, how we know when we're beholding it, when we see it, and God's concern for it. And now see how that intersects with and applies with the four previous solas. So number one, sola scriptura, upon scripture alone. Now if you remember, Rome had insisted that there were two or three sources of absolute truth available to believers. One was God's word, Rome would agree with that. But they also believed that the, the magisterium, the, the church councils, had equal or even greater authority than scripture because in their view, it was the church councils that gave us the scripture. And so we had something, according to them, that was of equal authority and value. Um, and certainly the Pope speaking ex cathedra from the chair, that was also viewed as inerrant. And so there were two or three Sources of authority. When scripture is clear, that point A, Christ's church is under the sole authority of his word. Now I ask you to turn to Second Peter, and we'll pick up here. There's a remarkable passage. Peter is getting ready to die. He knows he's getting ready to leave the scene. And so actually I want to pick up a little earlier than where the notes say in verse 12 to show you this. Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities. For though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus made clear to me. And I'll make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So Peter's just said, I know I'm going to die soon. 
And I don't want you to forget, I don't want you to be led astray. This letter exists so that we can be reminded of important truth. What's the first thing he wants to remind us of? Verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. So what he's saying is this, just let me pause to summarize. We're not making this up. We're not fools led astray. I heard God the Father speak. I saw Jesus' glory on the mountain. I know what I saw. He is, he is citing the pinnacle experience. Peter was one of three of the 12 apostles who Jesus called up on the mountain. And on that mountain, Jesus shone and, and a cloud of glory came down. And, and Moses and Elijah were there and God the Father audibly spoke and Peter heard it. Peter saw it, which makes the next sentence, verse 19, so remarkable. He says, on the one hand, we have this great experience, verse 19, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Scripture, Peter is saying, is more authoritative, more certain, and more reliable than even his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture came from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter knows, if you keep reading the book, Peter knows false teachers, false prophets will come along. They will claim visions. They will claim experiences. They will claim to be able to work powerful miracles. What Peter is doing at the beginning of this book is saying, I have the trump card of experiences. No one can top this. I was on the Mount of Transfiguration. I heard God the Father speak. I saw Elijah. I saw Moses. I saw Jesus glorified. And scripture's more sure, and you'll do well to pay attention to that. This from what Rome calls the first pope, telling us to put no trust in anything but Holy Scripture. Christ's church is under the sole authority of his word. You see, we dare not trust in our own opinion. This gives God the glory, does it not? Because we are totally dependent upon him and what he has said. Human wisdom, human logic avails nothing. If you'll turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 now. 1 Corinthians chapter one. The scripture warns there's a way that seems right to a man and this end is death. We dare not, dare not trust in our own judgments. Now yes, we work through scripture together. We reason with it together. We have a statement of faith in the back. It does not have the authority that God's word has. At best, it's us saying, this is what seems good to us. This is how we read the scriptures. But I am no authority You should only care what I think to the degree that I argue from the Bible. Scripture is the authority. Because, point B, salvation was designed to confound man's wisdom. Salvation was designed to confound man's wisdom. You ever feel embarrassed about the truth claims of the gospel? You ever stop and realize just how marvelous, wonderful, but from one perspective, how ridiculous they are? Middle Eastern Jew died in the middle of the Middle East, and yet that person dying on a cross was God, and that act done in one place in space and time has universal application for all people. You ever, you ever wrestle with feeling a little embarrassed about that? Understand God intentionally made salvation foolishness in the face of the wisdom of the world. 
It was intentionally done this way. But I want you to see why it was intentionally done this way. 1 Corinthians 1, 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God. God was happy to do it this way. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God intentionally arranged and planned salvation to be foolishness in the sight of the world. And so that makes us even more dependent on God to tell us how it works, to tell us what is true, because we can't simply trust what would make sense to us. Well, if I were God, I'd do it this way. We we dare not take those types of steps. We dare not go beyond what is written, because point C, we are warned repeatedly in the New Testament that to confuse man's word with God's, meaning to elevate man's word, to, to make the mistake of thinking something men said is something God said, is to worship him in vain. It's to worship God in vain. Listen to Matthew fifteen nine, Jesus speaking, citing Isaiah. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You see, raising man's word to God's word robs God of his glory and it makes our worship false. Colossians 2, 16 and following warns us, verse 20, if with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not touch, do not taste, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human teachings and precepts. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So when we take man's rules and teach them as God's rules, now it's good to have convictions, it's good to have your own principles, but when you foist those upon other people and treat them as though God hath said when he hath not said, Jesus says we worship him in vain, and Paul says they become useless in helping us resist sin. So they don't honor God and they don't help us. We would do well to heed the words of 1 Corinthians 4, 6 that tells us, Paul writing, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Or 2 John 1, 9, anyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. We dare not confuse the matter. Is this, what God said what man has said, do we... Do we Raise, no, we dare not. We dare not. We dare not rob God of his glory. No, with scripture alone, God alone gets the glory because we are dependent on him and his word. We have to look to him, not to ourselves, not to councils, not to popes, but to him for the truth that we need. Okay? That's sola scriptura. Sola gratia. By grace alone. If you remember... Um, we went back to Exodus 33. You don't need to turn there. Keep, keep actually your finger here in 1 Corinthians 1. And we'll return there in just a moment. But you remember Moses is up on the mountain and he asks to see God's glory, right? The people have just sinned with the golden calf 
And he says, show me your glory. Well, how does God respond? He says, I'll make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim to you my name, the Lord. And so Moses says, show me your glory. And here's what God says, I'll tell you my name. That's all you can handle right now. I'm gonna hide you in the cleft of the rock. I'm gonna walk by, you can see the afterglow. But you can handle this, you can handle my name. And I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and I will show mercy to whom I show mercy. Point A, God's freedom in grace is central to his glory. So Moses, get this, Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, okay, first bit of my glory I'll show you. I grace whom I grace. And I have mercy on whom I have mercy. What he's saying is his freedom, his prerogative to be gracious to whom he wishes to be gracious, to be merciful to whom he wishes to be merciful, is the very first thing he reveals about himself to Moses in response of show me your glory. And so we should understand that God's grace, rightly understood, is central to his glory. Now if you're still in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul will pick this up. Now we get uncomfortable here, there's an irony. We tend to think of the doctrines of God's free, sovereign grace, whereby he chooses and he takes the initiative and he opens eyes and he changes hearts and he draws and he calls and it doesn't all depend on us. And we get uncomfortable and we think that might make God actually look scary and ugly. It's the exact opposite. The scripture insists this is what gives God more glory. Look at where we just left off. We left off in 1 Corinthians 1.25, pick up in 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God chose to remove human boasting. God chose whom he did, here's your blank, God has chosen for his own glory. God has chosen as he did. God graced whom he graced. He mercied whom he mercied for his own glory. The glory of God is at stake. Silencing human boasting is at stake in grace alone. And because of him, you who are in Christ Jesus, who because of who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification, redemption, so that as it is written, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Turn turn to Ephesians chapter one. Again, another chapter that emphasizes God's choice and we'll see it linked directly to God's glory. The glory of God is at stake in our understanding of grace and in our understanding of who is ultimately responsible, who ultimately gets the credit for salvation. Ephesians 1, verses three to six. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, Two, and now we get goal or purpose. To what end has God chosen and predestined us? To the praise of his glory, us, grace. God's grace has glory to it, and God wants that glory to be seen and praise to result 
So rightly understanding grace alone directly links with God's glory alone. Because if God is the one who draws, and if God is the one who opens eyes, and if God is the one who speaks life and light in human hearts, who gets the glory for the salvation of men? It's not that we were smart enough. It's not that we were good enough. It's not that we were persistent enough, but it's because of God who had grace. And he gets the glory, and we get the blessing. You see, and now if you'll turn over to 2 Corinthians, let's turn over to 2 Corinthians, chapter three. We're not gonna look at chapters three through six. It's just 2 Corinthians, actually chapter four, verses three to six is a missing number. Listen to how Paul defines, describes, depicts how people are saved and how people are lost. It's all in terms of seeing glory, here at least. 2 Corinthians four, verse three. Even if our gospel is veiled, It is veiled to those who are perishing. And he's gonna say, okay, here's why they perish. Why do people perish? Why do people reject the gospel? You ever wonder that? You've shared the gospel with your family member, your sibling, your friend, your coworker again and again, and they have no interest, and you wonder why. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. They aren't seeing glory. They're not seeing the light, of the good news, the glory of Christ who is the image of God. They're blinded to seeing glory and so what do they not do? They don't respond with worship and joy and drawing near to Christ because they don't see glory. How is that problem solved? Pick it up in verse six. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, which is a call back to Genesis one, where God responding to no one on purely his own good pleasure and initiative said, let there be light. There was light. (coughs) Similar to that, God who said, let let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Why were you saved? How were you saved? You were saved by seeing glory. The blanks here, God saves us to see and enjoy his glory. You were saved by seeing glory and we just saw previously how Christ is returning to be glorified and marveled at and you were saved to behold glory. Grace has saved you and we've been saved to grace. God saves us to see and enjoy his glory. And so seeing glory is a a vitally important thing. If, if Christ bores you, if God's word bores you, if the gospel bores you, but you get excited and you worship other things, that is a fearful place to be. Because this passage describes those who are saved as those to whom God has caused to see something wondrous and glorious in the face of Christ. And we need to again and again ask God, I, we started this service asking the Lord to show us his glory in his word. Go back to chapter three. That's not only how we're saved, it's how we're sanctified. Look at 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. How do, how do you grow in the image of Christ? You see more glory. And when you see God's glory in his word, it changes you. 
And so your sanctification can be looked at from one angle as an ongoing process of seeing and responding to glory, seeing glory being changed by what you see, seeing more glory being changed by what you see. God's grace alone, and God gets the glory in that. We get the blessing, notice that's the pattern. God gets the glory, we get the blessing. We get the joy, we get the salvation. He gets the glory. By grace alone are we saved. Third, sola fide, through faith alone. And here's an important truth I want you to remember. The giver gets the glory. The giver gets the glory. In any situation, who gets the glory? The one who gives the gift, right? My generosity to you or someone else's generosity, the giver gets the glory. The person who receives the gift gets the blessing. The giver gets the glory. That's the logic of 1 Peter 4, 11, where Peter writes, whoever speaks is to speak as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Why should I serve in such a way to make it clear I'm serving in the strength God gave? I'm speaking according to the words God has spoken in order that in everything God may be glorified. God's gonna get glory in your service when it's clear that your service is powered by him. He's given you the strength. He's given us the wisdom. He's given us his word. And to the degree that that is evident in our actions, he gets glory. Because the giver gets the glory. Which then is why it is so critical that salvation is by faith alone and not works. Because if we're giving God the gift of our works, who gets to boast? We do. Here's what I did for you, God. I've worked really hard today. Here's my gift for you. Turn, turn to Romans chapter four. This is the fifth of six passages I'm gonna ask you to turn to. Paul makes this point emphatically in Romans four. <coughs> the end of chapter three, he's argued of justification by faith alone, 328, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. But why does that matter in Paul's mind? What's the so what of that? Chapter four tells us as he turns to Abraham as an example. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not as counted as a gift, but as his due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And Paul's logic is this. If you earned it, if you gave something to God and he paid you back with salvation, there's no grace involved. You deserved it. You can boast. Abraham could boast. It was because of my righteous living. It was because of my godly life that God, of course, repaid me with eternal life. But justification by faith alone removes all boasting. Salvation by faith alone removes human boasting. Stay here in Romans 4. Jump ahead a little bit in chapter four. I want to, it helps us answer the, the question, how is it then that faith glorifies God? You ever stop and ask that? Why is it that faith glorifies God in a way that works doesn't? Well, we've seen how works would give us glory, but how is it that faith glorifies God? Paul answers that question in Romans four in verses 19 to 20. He uses the example of the promise to Abraham of a child. Pick it up in verse 18. In hope, he believed against hope 
that he should become the father of many nations, as he has been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he used to do strong in faith as he gave glory to God. How does that work? How does my faith give God glory? I think it works something like this. Imagine you're one of Abraham's friends, and Abraham has told you how he met God, and God spoke to him, and he said, Abraham, you're gonna be the father of many nations, and this friend of yours, Abraham, is nearly 100 years old, and he's had zero kids, and his wife's right up there with him. It's kind of a joke. Abraham, I think you misunderstood what God said. Are you sure that was God? And so what does what Abraham got to be wrestling with? Can I trust this God who has spoken? Does he keep his word? What is his character like? And if Abraham had wavered in unbelief, what would that say? It would say that Abraham doesn't think God can be relied upon. Abraham doesn't think God keeps his word. Abraham doesn't think God is faithful. So positively, what does Abraham's perseverance and faith tell everyone who's watching? I don't care how hard to believe this is. I don't care how difficult this is. My God keeps his word. My God is faithful. My God can be relied upon. Does that make God look good? Of course it does. That's why faith gives God glory. Let me give you a different example of this. If someone walked up to you that you went to school with, you didn't know them, but you went to school with them, and they said to you, I'm in, a, I'm in a real hurry, I need to deposit this money in the bank and I can't go right now, would you do it for me? And they give you a suitcase with $500,000 and they give you the deposit number and say, I, I'm, just, I'm trusting you, will you please go deposit this for me, I gotta run. And if you say to them, why, why would you trust me with this? I could go steal it from you, I could rob you, why would you trust me? Which of these two answers gives you more glory? First answer. No particular reason, I needed to trust somebody. I was desperate, so I figured I might as well trust you. Or, I know we don't know each other very well, but I went to school with you, and I observed your character and your behavior, and I was impressed year after year of your integrity, your hard work, your faithfulness. I've heard others speak of your faithfulness. I've heard the teachers speak of your faithfulness, and so I've come to believe and trust that you are a man of integrity and honor. And if you say you will do this, you'll keep your word. Which of those two answers gives you glory? That's how faith gives God glory. We are saying this God can be trusted and relied upon. Point C, our faith glorifies God as fully trustworthy, as fully trustworthy. That's why faith alone matters. It removes boasting and it gives God all the glory. Finally, solus Christus in Christ alone. Now this is where it gets really interesting because Jesus on his own is the radiance of the glory of God. Listen to how the author of Hebrews begins his letter. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So Jesus without taking into view the incarnation and his work on the cross, has the fullness of the glory of God in this person. And yet, in the New Testament, what thing, what action, what attribute, what work, what, 
What is the reason for the highest glory given to Christ? It's his work on the cross. Point B, Jesus Christ's greatest glory is seen in the cross. Jesus Christ's greatest glory is seen in the cross. This comes through clearly in Philippians chapter two, where Paul says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So we start with the fact Jesus is equal with God. Yet Jesus doesn't hold on to his rights. He doesn't grasp and cling to them, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because Jesus was obedient, because Jesus humbled himself, because he became a servant, because he didn't hold on to his rights, because he went to a lowly cross and died for us according to the will of the Father, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory God the Father. So get this. The all-glorious Lord of glory receives his greatest glory, or it is seen most clearly in his work on the cross. That is the, that is the work for which Christ receives the most glory. All the spotlights turn on him, as it were. The, he's elevated and given a name above every name. This is his greatest glory. And we come along and say, and we chipped in too, Your sacrifice is sufficient, but we have a treasury of merit. Your high priesthood is wonderful and ours is equal. Do you see how adding anything alongside of Christ's soul sufficiency robs him of his glory? And we can talk about we're not worshiping, we're venerating, but let's be honest. Glory is being taken from the Lord and spread abroad. And God is jealous for his glory. Turn, turn finally to Revelation chapter five. This is important because God has determined to glorify his son. God's plan of salvation was brought about and accomplished so that all might see the glory of his son, that his character might be displayed. And when we see the, the praise chorus that occurs In the fifth chapter of Revelation, the emphasis is on the uniqueness of Christ. He and he alone receives this glory. There's a scroll, Revelation 5, that cannot be opened. Verse 2, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll? And the saints with superabundant merit didn't come forward and say us, did they? The whole point of this passage is there's only one, only Christ is worthy. Why is he worthy to take the scroll? Verse five, one of the elders said to me, weep no more, behold the lion, the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the world. And he went and opened the scroll Opened, or is it took? Went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders 
fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and every people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Only the Lamb is being praised. The, the chorus in heaven is not to the Lamb and to the saints, but to the Lamb alone. Christ alone gets this honor. Christ alone gets this high glory. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne. You see, the rest of creation now is to join in. The 24 elders fall down. They worship the Lord, and then the rest of heaven's audience will join in. I looked and I around, and I heard around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands upon thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. He heard all of creation join in. This is tying into Philippians, right? Every tongue confess, whether in heaven or on the earth or under the earth. I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea, and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne, and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen. The elders fell down and worshiped. Do you get, do you get that it's Christ alone who receives this glory and this honor? We get the blessing. We get saved. We get brought to heaven. We get cleansed. But make no mistake, it is Christ and Christ alone who gets the glory. And this is important then for how we live. I'm going to call the worship team up as we close this last point. But here it is, point C. Jesus Christ is worthy of all glory and all honor. And in our understanding of the gospel, and our understanding of how that works, whether we get some of the glory and God gets some of the glory, maybe we share the glory, or a gospel that gives God all the glory. We get all the blessings, but God gets all the glory will affect how we live People with this vision understand that every bit of your life, every bit of my life, is owed in joyful worship to the living Christ who was and is and is to come because by his blood we were ransomed and by his blood he made a people for God from every tribe and language. So we're gonna close this morning by singing all glory be to Christ. Please stand with me now as we sing.